Hello and, wel- Hello and welcome to another episode of Mars World Podcast. A podcast that speaks to absolutely amazing and fascinating people. If you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast, because if you're on Amazon or iTunes. Now today's guest is the amazing comedy gem, Howard Smith. He's been going for over 20 years. And this is an episode that will bring value to performers of all levels. This goes into his incredible story of finding his voice. How he's developed a very unique and creative way of developing and harnessing material. The common pitfalls he sees from younger acts. How effectively with the great thing about comedy is if you stick at it long enough, you can make a career out of it. Talks about the future performing arts. And to put it to boot, he's an absolutely hilarious, insightful, and honest man. Which you guys will absolutely love, or whom you're gonna absolutely love. Now, without further ado, let us talk to Howard. Ah, how are you doing? Hello. How you been? Yeah, not bad, man. Well, you know, fucking pandemic balls, but apart from that. <laughs> ah, is that one of your favourite clubs you have? Behind you, is that... Is that one oh, oh, right. Well, this is, this is me with the band. Oh, right, yes. How do you combine the two? How do you deal with both of them? Uh, They're very, very different. Um, I mean, it's kind of weird because I brought the band back in 2015 and um, I hadn't, you know, I haven't done any gigs with the band since 1991. Um, And then bringing the band back. um, when When I quit music, I quit and part of the reason was because I was sick of being in bands. I was sick of, of like, you know, you have to have a debate about everything. Oh, you know, well, what should we have? Pizza or Chinese? You know, an hour later when the debate ends. <laughs> and, 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 and it's just like, you know, songwriting and, and everything. It, it, I, I was just like, I want to be out on my own. So, you know, the band, the band split. I, mi- I moved to Newcastle for a couple of years and was in a band there and, um, we did some cool stuff, but uh, we didn't, it didn't put anything out. Um, and I moved to London when I, um, in 1994 when I was 24. Um, and I just wanted to be out of being in a band. And then fast forward to 2015 and, and having enjoyed all of the, you know, the rehearsals and, and, and all the rest of it, we finally played some live shows because basically it's me from the original lineup and four new guys um it it was a we tried to reform the other members wanted to but one by one they dropped out and i ended up with a completely new band um and that first night we did a show and i came off stage and i just it, it it was just amazing having had an hour on stage and it not be just me you know, having that, having that um, experience and all that energy and all of that um, uh, adrenaline pumping through you, but also sharing it on stage with five, sorry, with four other people. And you're all, you're all experiencing it. And then you come off stage, and this is what I'd really forgotten. You come off stage in the dressing room. Now, you and I know, if you've, come off, if you've come off stage and you just absolutely kick the arse out of a comedy show, right? And you walk into the dressing room, let's be honest, nobody wants to fucking hear it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've all just watched your gig. You've done very well. Great. Now, they've either been on and not done as well as that or done as well as that, in which case, what's the deal? Or they're, gonna, or they're about to go on and in their minds, you've just made their lives harder. Um, or, or you know, do you know what I mean? Nobody, nobody wants to hear it. You can't sit down and break down your set and the bits you really enjoyed and that guy doing that and all of the stuff when you replay a gig in your head, 
all of that stuff that you can't share with people when you're in a band and you come off stage, you get to break down the whole show. You know, you get to, you get to, you know, you're all in the dressing room. There's no other comics, you know, <laughs> you're all, you're, you know, you've all been on stage together and you all come off stage together and then you all kind of wind down together and just talk about all of them, oh, about that song. And that went down really well. And oh, what about when that guy did that? And, and that, I was like, whoa, I have really missed this. <laughs> you know, it'd been a long time since I'd experienced anything like that. And it, it was, it was really, really, that was like the big, that was the biggest, probably the biggest shock of all. And have you, have you managed to adapt since COVID hit with both your music and comedy adventures or what have you done to, to, well, to cope not with it all? No, not really, because basically the band is, uh, there's two of us um, that live about 15 minutes from each other in, in, in West London, in Ealing. Then we've got a guitarist in Bridgend, we've got a guitarist in um, Devon, and we've got a drummer in Newcastle. So everybody is, you know, all over the place, which basically means there's nothing we can do. Um, you know, you can't, you know, you can't play, you can't, you can't, uh, all get on zoom and play a song <laughs> you know there's you can't you can't stream anything um you know if you're going to do anything as a band we all have to be in the same room that's that's a given um the only thing we were able to do was film a um a lockdown video so we filmed basically a sort of comedy um version of um on our on our album there's a cover version of a suzanne vegas song called blood makes noise and so we did a we did a sort of comedy lockdown video for it um i'll ping i'll ping you the link and um and and suzanne vega guests on it um on the song but she also guested in the video as well which is great she sent us a clip over from new york so we've got a we've got her coming out of a out of a cupboard uh, <laughs> Uh, which, which is really cool but the thing is we could do that because we could all just go and it was great because it gave us something to do it was at the beginning of lockdown one so basically all we we all went out with our phones and filmed us doing stupid stuff whilst listening to our version of blood makes noise and then we all you know sent the video clips to our guitarist who then arranged it um or edited it but also discovered this kind of like narrative that had appeared because for some reason we'd all filmed a clip of us in bed asleep for some reason like just totally independently we'd all done that and that gave him um uh, a route to create a narrative for the uh, for the video so that's all we've been able to do um put a couple of t-shirts out a bit of merch we put out some masks we put out some snoots um and uh, and comedy wise, I've done a few. I've done a few Zoom things, um, and I've done a few Zoom corporates as well. Uh, oh, it's just horrible. It's just horrible. It's too. Did was did you even see the audience, or did you um, did you was it did you could you see them on a screen like we are now? Or yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I mean, one of the corporates I did was uh, ninety. Um, we had we had ninety people signed up on Zoom um for this you know 90 members of staff um that's 90 logons and there was like various people and so so i had three screens of <laughs> you know in zoom where you swipe across i had three screens full of people um so you're trying to you're trying to keep them engaged and you and and you deliver a gag and then basically you get 90 different responses because You've got the latency, you know, you've got, everyone's got a different quality of, uh, of um, connection. So the laughter is dotted about at different times, which, which means that your performance has to become extra robotic. So you kind of literally, you know, you can't get the flow. So you, when you deliver a punchline, you have to, you just have to leave it a little bit longer for it to drop everywhere. And then you carry on. So it, it, it's, it's just from, a, from a, a rhythm point of view, I've, I've, I've struggled with it. I found it quite difficult. Um, but what I've personally, what I've worked, what I found works best is actually um, the last one I did, I didn't do any material. I just improvised with, with everybody 
and ask him like like you would like you would in a you know like you'd MC a room you know you i'm just talking to everybody and talking to them about their you know oh look and so and so in the court so and so over there looks like you know they've been they've been kidnapped and so and so over there looks like they're in their you know 12 year olds bedroom and you know and and and, and just kind of just have a laugh with everybody um and that for me worked probably better than than doing material as it were because it made it it made it really kind of unique and about you know very much about this zoom right now as opposed to right i'm going to be wheeling out my material again and it just felt yeah it just felt i i felt a real you know it was the only time i felt a kind of connection um with with a zoom audience um and it's just not why i got into doing comedy you know i mean i'm i'm i, I like you know i perform live perform live with the band you know and um and and that's it, it, there's there, there is no buzz yeah there's no buzz to getting up from my sofa standing in front of my laptop for half an hour and then sitting down again you know, there's, there, you know that does not replace driving to the venue finding the venue having a chat with the other comics seeing the audience come in do you know what i mean it's it's yeah it's um yeah it, 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 I, i'm i'm doubt i'll be doing any more to be honest yeah it's not as as yeah, you mentioned a lot of good points there i found yeah for the shows that i've put on personally the only ones that have worked like been hecklers shows or improv shows yeah um but the when it's just straight stand-up yeah there's just as you said all the things you mentioned and it's just that bit harder and some of the times you can't even see the people you're performing to yeah yeah and that's that's a real tough one um and and it's kind of like i don't know i think i think if you're not going to have your camera on that that winds me up even more it's like the ultimate heckle because you know it's like well the you know look this isn't ideal you know <laughs> we are not in a venue we can't all but for you to sit there with your camera off is the equivalent of sitting in the front row with your back to me you know it, it's it, it, it's it's just it just winds me up i can't i can't handle it at all there is something I'm looking into because I was speaking to someone else in the podcast and they mentioned something called Remo. Have you heard of that? No, what's that? Apparently it says it's something similar to the, to Zoom, but it's a bit like, like they have they have the audience, like what you see there in your backdrop. Right. They do something like that. So I maybe want to look into that. Oh, that what? Mean? You mean they... So, so what? So you're all... I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean. So, like, as you see the backdrop there of all the crowd there, yeah, they, I think they have something where they have set it up like a seating thing. But I haven't looked it up yeah. yet. But they mentioned something along those lines, yeah, because he was doing some performance thing as well. He's like a, he calls himself Bongo John or something, <laughs> and he, <laughs> he's a bit of a character, and he does some sort of he does, so there's swing, but he does like jazz swing or something something right. like modern swing with a bit swing with modern music in the backdrop right okay that sounds interesting it is <laughs> he, he's i'm gonna he sent me a few links so i'm gonna look into them but yeah it's we all have to adapt and yeah. i think we'll probably get back to normal around sort of end of year i suppose yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, it, it's definitely, I mean, it's the smaller venues. The venue that is pictured in my, um, uh, in my background there, is, um, is quite a big venue. We'd normally, you know, we're normally kind of places play places like Camden Underworld, you know, which is like a 500 cap venue. Now, if we take Camden Underworld as an example, right? It's a 500 cap venue which is underground with no windows. Now. Um, the rumor is that um, every venue in the country is going to need to have um, medical grade air conditioning, as in the stuff they have in operating theatres. Um, and the working theory is places like, for instance, Camden Underworld will be said, will be told, OK, here are the, here's the new legislation. Um, here's the new air conditioning you need and you need to install that by 2025 and 
um, the minute you install it, your capacity is 500 again. But until then, it's 175. Thus rendering, thus rendering the business model fucked. And now the venue have to decide after months and months of being closed and no revenue, you've got to rip out your air conditioning. You're going to have a brand new state-of-the-art system put in. Is it worth it? Or do you just fold? Oh, so I, I genuinely think that, that we, we are, we're nowhere near seeing the amount of venues gone that are going to go. Because I think the hangover of COVID is going to be, you know, it, it, it's going to be huge. It's going to be more ventilation in buildings. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be high, high quality air conditioning, et cetera. Um, and unfortunately, I'm fucked twice because that basically applies to the music venues I play. And as you know yourself, comedy venues. I mean, look at downstairs, the King's Head, for instance. Oh, has that, did, I was going to ask you about that. Has, is that going to still go ahead? Or well, I, I, I haven't heard from Pete. Um, I haven't spoken to him at all during lockdown, actually, which is amazing. It must be the longest I haven't spoken to him. But um, I don't know. I don't know what the score is. And I'm sure, you know, um, I, I will be having a conversation with him at some time. But the point I'm, I'm making is that it's just, it's, but they, funnily enough, had a refurb about three years ago and had brand new air conditioning put in. Now, so that might mean that they'll be okay. Um, yeah. But um, again, look, also I must put the caveat on all of this, that these are all kind of rumors at the moment. You know, obviously I'm hearing from uh, the band's live agent and promoters and things like that. Um, and at the moment, nobody really knows. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Pete's an awesome guy. He gave me um, some really good advice, which I've still not quite got the hang of yet. But he says, like, what's it called? He said, um, like, people need to know what they're getting. So, like, you got, they've got to be able to know what you are. And I'm still sort of, still trying to figure that out yet. I still haven't quite... Uh, well, there's, there, there, there's nothing wrong with that, mate. I mean, it, it, it's, it's called... I mean, uh, Pete is... Uh, Pete's great. I mean, I would, I would you know, any comic, um, I would say you've got to play the king's head and then you've got to um, stick your head into, through Peter's window at the end of the night and just say to him, um, could I get a bit of feedback, you know, and some, some advice? Because most comics don't. And they are walking past somebody who has booked everyone. And when I mean everyone, I mean, yeah, Louis CK. I mean, yeah, Robin Williams. I mean, he's booked everyone. You know, Mitch Hedberg, you name them. He's booked them in that club and he is, you know, he's been running, I think it's the, the longest running um, uh, circuit, you know, comedy club anywhere in the UK. It's been running about 30, over 30 years. It's gone, you know, well over 30 years. Yeah. And, and if you walk past a guy with that much to offer in the way of advice without asking him, then you know you're 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 not doing your job. He's um he's and he's he's more than willing to to share advice and um and it's and and that is great advice he's given you. It's called finding your voice. And some people yeah. it takes years, and some people never do, and some people, are just you know f from the first gig they they know who they are and what their voice is. Yeah, I mean I've got I've got got more around it now, but it's not quite there yet. Nearly there, I feel. But yeah, it's, it's probably the best advice I've ever got, mate. Yeah, I mean, it, well, look, it's, it's, it is great advice. And, and funnily enough, to, I think we're rolling into a topic that, that, that you were going to ask about, you know, because I started out as Howard Smith doing stand-up for like eight years. And, and, and I was doing fine. I was doing really well. You know, I was doing paid 20s everywhere. I got myself a live agent and, and everything was going great. But I wouldn't have paid to see my act. I wouldn't, I didn't think my act was that great. I mean, audiences seemed to like it, but I didn't. And I, I just didn't feel like I was, like it was me. I still, I still didn't feel like I was connecting with the audience the way I wanted to. I still didn't feel like it was really me. I didn't feel like I'd, you know, I'd found my voice. I hadn't found my persona um, close but it, it still just, 
didn't feel quite right. And, and an expression I found out years ago, um, which I, which I absolutely totally, um, uh, kind of gravitated towards was, um, I was trapped in my act. It's very easily to get trapped in your act. You're trapped in this, right? This is, this is my persona and this is my material. And to be honest, I'm not really that bothered about either. It just seems to work. Well, at that point, being a stand-up and that dream of doing stand-up for a living and everything else, well, you've managed to turn it into just another fucking job. You know, if you're, it, it's like stand-up is just a job. If you're turning up and not enjoying it, then why are you doing it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I, I think, I, and yeah, it becomes so hard because you become sort of entrenched in a certain thing because you become so dependent on it, you're worried about losing all of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's, that's exactly where I was. I was, um, it was like, I've worked so hard to get to this point and, and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, it was like, yeah, and when you walk off stage every night, you're going, you know, audience can be like, you know, clapping and cheering and loving it and cheering me off stage. And I'm just, and I'm just walking off stage. And before I've even got to the dressing room, that gig is done and forgotten about. And I'm thinking about tomorrow's yeah. and, and, and it's like, well, there's no joy in that. That's, 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 that is the mentality of a night, somebody on night shifts, which effectively I was, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, all you can think about is going home and going to bed and you're gonna have to do this all again tomorrow. And how, how do you sort of get, how did you, um, how did you manage to break away free from that? What, how did you make that um, whilst keeping drastic. all of those things? Well, quite drastic. I quit for five years. I quit stand up completely. Um, and for five years, I was just off doing other things. Um, digital TV was just starting. Um, BBC Choice, which was the, um, the very first uh, digital channel from the BBC came up and um, myself and two other comics that I knew um, managed to wind our way into doing a, um, a football show on a Saturday. Well, basically there was a football show every Saturday um, that ran for sort of two hours um, after, you know, after the final match had finished on a Saturday. Um, and it was with Matt Smith, who now works for BT and, and all sorts, he presents for them and Mark Bright the ex Crystal Palace striker and um, me and the two Daves used to do a sketch every week. Now, basically what happened was um, we, we knew a guy and he was working at BBC choice and he was a producer and he produced the football show and we knew him quite well. And we met up for drinks and he went, look, why didn't you come on the show? Um, and very cleverly, um, he was like, oh, come on the show, you know, no, I'm going I'm, to, I'm, we were like, you know, like seriously, because it's not, it's not easy getting in with the BBC. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm go I, I want you on, I want you on the next episode. So he got, he got us on and we were like, right, okay, shit, we've got to deliver. So we, we spent all week working on it and everything else. We did it. It went down really well. And then he came up to us and said, um, do you want the good news or the bad news? And we were like, the good news? He said, the good news is that's, that was really good. It went down really well. We're like, oh, great. What's the bad news? And he goes, I've just found out this is my last episode. And we're like, oh, shit. It's like, that's our, you know, that's the guy who, that's our advocate. That's our in. Um, but the guy who was then became the new, the new sort of director producer um, was, was in the audience and loved it and, and said, no, I want you, yeah, I want you to stay on. So we stayed on for about 20 weeks. Um, I met all sorts of wonderful people. I mean, you know, from George Weyer, you know, just like all oh, these incredible footballers and, you know, having like Mark Bright as a, as a mate of mine. It was, it was great fun. Um, and I did all sorts of bits and pieces. And then um, I, I, I tried my hand at um, uh, domesticity. I was in a, I was in a relationship with a girl and we, you know, we, we, we moved in together and we were going to buy somewhere. <laughs> And I guess she spotted that my heart wasn't really in it. Um, we, we were going to buy a place and um, about a day before the surveyor was due to go in that we'd already paid for, 
she was like, I'm not sure about this. And I was like, right, okay. So I canceled the surveyor. And from that point, our relationship kind of unraveled and to the point of splitting up. And then when we split up and she moved out and I was just like, my natural instinct was right. I've got all of this like emotion inside me. I've got a breakup. I've got, you know, distress, everything. The perfect thing to do, the perfect place to go is back on stage. So I rang Pete from the King's Head and I hadn't gigged down there obviously for quite a few years. And I rang Pete and, and I thought, right, okay, I'm going to have to do the old, you know, you might remember me. I used to be around, blah, blah, so I, I'm sorry. And he, he answered the phone and I went, hi Pete, it's Howard Smith. Um, I used, and he went, oh yeah, hello Howard, how are you? It's been a while. And straight away I was like, I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> So I, um, I told him what had been going on. He went, yeah, that's about right. He said, well, come down on a Thursday. So I went down on a Thursday and I went up and I had a few kind of jokes written about and I went up and I kind of just, just did some stuff. And it went really well because it was coming from the heart. And Pete, and Pete was like, well, you're not shit. You're still not shit. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, 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 um, I'll give you a Sunday, but keep coming back on the Thursdays. You're a little bit rusty. And I was like, I've been out of the game five years. He's like, yeah, I know. So I did that for about two or three months and was loving it. But by the same token, I was realizing that I was, um, I was a guy, a, 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 middle, a middle class white guy in the mid thirties doing stuff about broken relationships. And one night I was on a bill of six comics and every single one of us was male, white, mid thirties and every single one of us had material on breakups. And I, I, you know, and I was like, yeah, this has got to change. This, this is pointless because now I'm a little bit older. You know, I don't have youth on my side anymore. I'm a little bit older and I need to kind of, and I need to, I need to stand out. And now the character of, of Keith had been lurking with the two other guys that I did the football comedy show with, we wrote a couple of sitcoms, a couple of short movies and stuff like that. Um, Now I went on new years with one of them and his wife and my then girlfriend, which was also his sister. So the four of us were out in Lille in France and we were in this beautiful patisserie with all these beautiful, you know, cakes and everything. It was amazing. And, and, and one of the guys went, ah, oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I just put this Yorkshire accent on and I just went, they haven't got any fucking pasties. And, um, and, and the, three pe- the three people I was with, like my girlfriend, my mate, and his wife, all just fucking cracked up. Just cracked up. And um, so, I, so I kept doing it. And, 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 I just, and, and it was one of those things, you know what it's like, you know, you go away for the weekend with friends and like in jokes appear and stuff like that. And after all, and, and you know, after all, I, and I, for some reason, I, I decided to start calling me, I decided to start calling the character Uncle Keith. And then, um, and, and it was getting to the stage where we'd go to the shops and one of them would turn around and go, so what does Uncle Keith think of this place then? <laughs> and I, you know, and I'd have to do a sort of little bit of, um, you know, a, a, a little bit of, of taking a piss. And then, and, and then Keith started to develop as a character and I quickly binned off Uncle Keith because, you know, Uncle Keith, professional pedo. That's not happening. Right? It's, uh, you know, it's Keith Platt, professional Yorkshireman. So I dropped the uncle pretty quickly because of the overtones. And, um, and when I got back, uh, Dave, who I'd, who I'd gone away with, was like, that's a real character. We should do something with that. Should, we should do something with that. And this is one of those moments where in various people's comedy careers, there will be a point where somebody says says to you something about a joke or something and you will go i hadn't seen that you're right and we we'd come back and, the, and me and the two daves who'd done the tv show and done, written various scripts and we, we, we sat down for a writing meeting and, and and dave said that character you came up with while we were away that's brilliant that's keith platt we should work with him we should we should write some stuff for keith platt that's that character's got legs and i just sat there and i was like bloody hell he's right that's he's absolutely spot on and i hadn't you know i hadn't seen it it was just oh we fucked about for the weekend and that was that so 
having been back on the circuit for three months doing me, I just kind of went, do you know what? One, one Saturday, I remember it clear as day, one Saturday, I went to um, uh, town, I went to two charity shops, and in one of them, um, I got a cardigan. And in the other one, I got two shirts. I got the trousers that I still wear today. Um, and um, mm -hmm. I said to the woman in the charity shop, she said like, oh, you know, how can I help you? What do you want? You know, and I was like, I basically explained what I was looking for and why I was looking for it. And she gave me this really weird look. And then she said, and what do you need? I said, I just need, I just need the trousers now. And she was like, wait here. She goes out the back and comes out with a pair of corduroy trousers, which are the absolute perfect length for my legs, but are waist 42. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I'm a waist 30. So needless, to, and, and, it, and it was like, but they're perfect because they're just, there's so much room in them. They're so old manny. She had a pair of knackered old shoes. I was like, I'll have those as well. I came home, I dressed up as Keith in the flat. And I got, I, I basically took quite a lot of the set that I've been doing as me and I started doing it as Keith. And, and it proved to me what I always thought, which is the stuff I do as Keith, I should be able to do as me and it's funny and people laugh. But if I do it as Keith, it just puts a twist on it and it gives it, it, gives it a little bit more juxtaposition. And it sounds a little, it's, it's a bit funnier because it's coming from a guy that that's, that's that much older. And it just, it just freed me up. So to come all the way back to, to, to how we rolled into this subject, when you were talking about, you know, persona and things like that and finding your voice, when it comes to comedy, the truth is that I've found my voice through Keith and Keith, is that voice because Keith allows me to absolutely lose it and do anything I want and get away with it because it's a character. And um, when I MC, I don't MC as Keith ever. I always MC as me. I have MC'd as Keith once and I can tell you about that later if you want, because it was a, it's a bizarre story. Um, but I, yeah, uh, I mean, I MC is me. And when I MC is me, I am like just absolutely me. It's basically what I do with the band between songs, except I know what I'm doing because I'm a comedian. So I can, you know, I can work the room and fine, wonderful. And that persona is fine and perfect. But when it comes to doing just stand up and sets, Keith it has just, Keith is my persona. And that's, that's, it, it, I'm just so free to do whatever I like. When I go on stage as Keith, I literally, I, I kind of know that I can get away with anything. I can do anything. And it's, 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 like, a, it's like a bulletproof vest. Because people, you know, Keith, Keith has got those benefits for two reasons. One, people give old people a pass anyway. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, bless him. You know, it's not. It's All the younger people. Yeah, yeah, really yeah exactly. Yeah. And secondly, it's a fucking character. If you're heckling and getting the ass with Keith, you just look like a dick. Because Keith doesn't exist. Somebody dressed up as an old man. You know, so it's really it's really hard for people to, you know, to, to sort of get you know get on the wrong side of uh, of of Keith so um yeah i've 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 loved it i mean i've really 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 loved um doing keith for one of a better expression <laughs> and what what um what what are your sort of when you're developing material for keith do you normally i mean do you, do you switch in between the two like when you go to new material nights, you do it as you, and then you go and put it for Keith or? Right, that's an interesting one. Um, here, it, we all have our, we all have our, um, our styles, we all have our, um, our secrets. And mine is, um, I don't do new material nights ever. I don't see the point in them. Um, the whole, the whole point of new material 
is the audience shouldn't know you're doing new material and never introduce new material. Because now, the, even if you're doing a normal show and you go, I'm going to do a little bit of new material now. Oh, you've just made it a waste of time, haven't you? You've just told them that what you're about to do now is experimental. So you've shat in the swimming pool. You've, 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 changed the, you've changed the dynamic entirely of the audience. The audience are now not there just waiting for your next gag. The audience are now, oh, right, this is new material, is it? Right, okay, uh, hit us with it then. It, that, that's not, you know, what you need to do is drop new material in to a normal set, or rather, this is how I work it. I, you know, I, if I come up with a new gag, or the idea of a new gag, I will workshop it in front of a crowd in a set just as normal, at a normal gig. And if I can get something out of it, great. And if I can't, I move on. But the audience never know it's new material. I'll never let on it's new material. Um, because for me, new material, that's that whole concept. It just, it, just, it just doesn't work. Because you need to know if your gags work in front of an audience as normal. So the best way to find out if your gigs work in front of an audience as normal is do them in front of an audience as normal. Don't tell them it's new material. And, and like I said, I, I just think also new material nights, the only public who turn up to a new material night are comedy boffins, are comedy diehards. Well, you don't play to rooms full of comedy diehards. You play to rooms full of normal people, you know, for want of a better phrase. So my, my logic has always been, it needs to work in front of a, it needs to work in front of, in front of a regular crowd. That's where that, that's where material needs to be developed in front of a regular crowd. And yeah, that's an interesting thing you point there. Cause I've, I've, I've had a bit of a thought recently because when I've, whenever I try and develop material or try and write on a book or try and spend times ages and ages getting a perfect punch on it, it doesn't work. But when I go up on stage and I just talk honestly and just go with the flow and don't actually try and be funny. Yeah the comedy comes and then I forget to record it and then boom, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but again, well, okay, well, here's, an, here's another, um, I mean, I've, I've, used this, I've used this kind of like rule that I have. I've used this for music, for comedy, years and years and years and years ago. I remember hearing an interview with Lionel Richie of all people. And, um, and they said like, how do you write, how do you write sort of melodies and stuff like that, you know, and, and, and lyrics and stuff like that. And he said, if I think of a lyric or a melody or anything like that, and the interviewer goes, like, do you write it down? Do you record it straight away? And he just goes, nope, I sleep on it. And if I can remember the melody the following day, if I can remember the lyrics the following day, then I write them down. Ooh, that, that's amazing. I like, yeah, I was like, hey, right. In other words, if you can remember it, it's good. If you can't remember it, yeah, it was, it was just a thing, and you can do better. So I, so I've, you know, I've never liked like, you know, writing and 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 shit like that. Just makes me, you know, just turns me off. Um, so so using the dict, so so I, you know, I've had my own way to do it. So I just used my dictaphone. But what I found as well was really useful is if you want to do a new bit of material, if you want to go back and dig a bit of old material up. If it's written down, you go back, you dig it out and you go, right, well, there it is. And it's okay, right, well, you know, now you need to remember how you delivered it, how you timed it, all the rest of it. Whereas if you just go to a cassette and play that cassette of exactly how you used to do it, I was like, yeah, great, that's perfect. That's, you know, that's spot on as far as I'm concerned. So, um, so yeah, the old, the old, the old tape library worked for me. Um, but, you know, as I've, as I've said, each to their own. And do you use more so, when you want to punch things up, do you more so just perform it a lot of times rather than go in and, like, at the end of it, write those lines or whatever? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think, um, again, it, it, it comes back to, it comes back to improvising. And, and the thing is that it's easy for me to say that I always, that, that, that I, that I improv my material, you know, 
on stage in front of a crowd and I don't do new material nights and stuff like that. That's fine. But I've been, I've been doing stand up for 26, 27 years. So, so I've got, I've got the, I've got the confidence to do that. Do you know, he's like, I, I know I can go out there and do that, you know, and I know I can do it, go out there and do that. And I can slip some new material in and I can, and I can workshop it with, with, with a crowd. So, so I also understand it's not everybody's, you know, it's certainly not everybody's way of doing it. And, um, but I, it, there's always looking for toppers, you know, in my opinion, material is never finished. You know, you're always working on it. It's like that old saying that old, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's all over entertainment, you know, uh, you know, material is never finished. It's just abandoned. It's like, you know, you, you, because it, essentially you can keep, if you keep a section long enough, I've, I had a section in my, uh, in my set for about God, over 10 years, but it started out as like two jokes, but over the course of the years, it developed into like a six or seven minute piece because I just, it just kept building. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you, you, you know, do those two jokes and then, and then it would, for some reason, you're improvising, you add a third to it and then there'd be a topper. And then, you know, and then somebody in a crowd might shout something and you respond to them and that gets a laugh. And you think, right, how can I incorporate that? Can I incorporate that heckle anyway into the act? Is there, is there a way of me heckling myself or, or, or do I take the heckle and just use it as a, as a setup? And can I create, a scenario where that heckle as a setup works and, 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 and it builds and builds and builds. And, and that's, you know, it starts out as two jokes and hopefully within six or seven months, it's, it's a bit, you know, it's a three, four, five, six minute bit, whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it isn't, sometimes it's only ever those two jokes, but it's just, you know, I, I guess I just, just play with it. Is it a bit like with Lewis C.K. when he was developing bits, like he would put the newest bit at the start so that you'd have the pressure of making it good. And because you do a lot of your stuff live performance wise, it forces you in the zone. So you can't second guess yourself. You can't think of that. You just have to try and focus on one thing and making them laugh and just working with what's there. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody has that. I mean, he obviously feels, he obviously feels the need to put that, to put that pressure on himself. Um, I, I, I don't ever feel the need to put extra pressure on myself. That's for sure. Um, but, but by the same token, I mean, it's look it's, for me, it's just really simple. You start with your strongest gag and you finish with your second strongest gag. Open hard, close hard. That's it's, it's, it's pretty much that simple for me. You go on and from joke one, you need to smash it. You need to go, here's the first, you've, that first gag out of, your, out of your mouth, a lot of people are gonna make their decision on that. But that's why when I go on stage, the first thing out of my mo mouth is never a gag. I'm never gonna start my set with material because why would you? The room is full of jokes. The whole, the whole thing that makes a comedy set work is connect with the audience. Spend your first 30 seconds, minute, minute up, whatever. Not too long, but literally you could do one joke about the room or about people in the room or about the occasion or about the night of the club or about that ridiculous fucking chandelier in the middle of the room or about how the fire exits don't look big enough for everybody to get out in time. Make, make a joke, make several jokes about the room, about something that you've all got in common. Because straight away, the audience go, oh yeah, yeah, good point, he's good, this guy. Done. They'll buy, they will buy from you now because you're selling jokes and now they are gonna buy from you. Sales and stand-up are very similar. I mean, you never, you never ever, right? Get somebody from Sky ringing you up at home and go, hi, I from Sky. Right, TV packages, we've got so-and-so at so-and-so. It's like, who the fuck is this? Piss off. <laughs> yeah, what they do is they go, hi, my name's Adam. I'm calling from Sky. How are you today? I'm, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm really well. Are you working from home? Is it, are you doing okay in the lockdown? Yeah, I am. Okay, well, the reason I'm calling you today is they just built a rapport. They just earned the right to start selling. 
Because if I picked the phone up and they started selling, I'd have put the phone straight down. It's the exact same things when you do a stand-up gig. You walk on stage, but you don't just start telling jokes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Howard Smith, and you'd walk on. Right, I was reading the paper the other day. Oh, who the fuck's this come? <laughs> you know, you've, it, it's like, no, you walk on stage, you go, oh, all right, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. Uh, I mentioned yeah. you managed to park um, after three hours. Ha ha ha, it's a, resident, you know, it's a residential area. Everybody knows you can't park. Or, you know, as soon as I get to a venue, I'm looking at that venue and I'm looking for the jokes in the room. And, I'm, and watch the audience come in and, and all the rest of it. Because that, that, believe me, that's the key to making stand-up work, is connect with the audience up front. And if you connect with the audience up front, your set will go so much better than walking on, doing what's best for you, ignoring them, and cracking on. Oh, yeah. That, you know... Th- I mean, the amount of times that I've seen that is is unbelievable, right? They, they, yeah. Like they're bombing and they still keep going and doing that and they create like a whole black hole that's impossible to fill afterwards. Woof! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's horrendous. And, and I honest, honestly believe that most, most comedy deaths can be avoided by connect with the audience up front. You know, get... Because you do two things. A... Well, you do three things. You build a rapport. You show that you're present in the room. And you earn their permission to start doing your set. And, and that's the other thing as well. It is about being present. Because if you, if you walk on, go like, all right, all right. So I was doing this thing. Or whatever, and, they just think, and they just think, oh, you know, he's just fucking, he's just probably done a gig up the road. And he's just, you know, and he's just doing the same stuff. We could be anybody. I've seen that loads of times, you know, when you've been on a bill and you see comics come in and they're on their third show of the night. Oh, yeah, I've just, oh, I've just done so-and-so. Yeah, and you go like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. And you've been there all night. And they go on the stage and you just think, what, what fucking gig are you playing, mate? What are you doing? Do you know what I mean? And it's like they've come from these, they've come from these two, like, shows where there's been two, three hundred people. And they've come to your show where there's like 60 people in a really nice room and they're all lovely. And they walk on stage and start going to war. Like there's a load of Hindus in the audience. Do you know what I mean? And, the whole, <laughs> and you can literally see the audience going, what the fuck? What do we do? Yeah. And it's just, and, it, and it's somebody just walking in, not reading the room, going on stage. Yeah, I'm great. And then halfway through, we're like, I have completely fucking misjudged this, haven't I? And I've, got to try somehow and turn this around or win them back um and and like i said i just think yeah up front connect job done the other side of that coin and i speak from experience here i love i love the connecting bit i love taking the piss out of a room that all of the other comics have missed I love pointing and, and, and you know, and just like, oh, you, what about that? And oh, yeah, there's this and there's that. And, 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 the, and I love it. And you get, you get a great response from, from audiences if you can make them laugh about stuff that is right in front of their face that they hadn't noticed. And, and it can be the simplest thing. I remember seeing a comic. Um, I remember seeing a comic. We, I, drove, I drove her to the gig. We were driving, uh, we were driving to the gig. And on the way to the venue, she noticed that there was a shitload of um, chicken shops on this street. And she just started writing, she just started writing the names of these chicken shops down. And, um, and when we, we got to the gig, I was MC and I introduced her. She came on and she was like, oh, hello, yeah, you know, um, my name's so-and-so. And um, uh, this is a nice little town you've got here, isn't it? And everyone was just silent and she was like, yeah, shit, isn't it? And, and, and there was a giggle and she goes, although one thing I will say for you, got some chicken shops. Fucking place just absolutely blew up. Everybody was doubled over, pissing themselves. All she said was, you got some chicken shops, but it was brilliantly delivered because she was delivering it in a way like, you know, oh, you've got two or three chicken shops where clearly they've got 20 or 30, you know. <laughs> So everybody laughed at that. And she just pulled this piece of paper out 
and just started reading all the different names, you know, Wings of Fire, Chicken Cottage, you know, Chocolate, yeah. And, and she read them out. And as she read them out, the laughs just got bigger and bigger and bigger and people were just in fucking tears by the end of it. And she was only doing 10 minutes. And she literally had time, she'd literally done about eight minutes and hadn't started her set yet. But she, but she had the, she had the wherewithal to go, do you know what? Fuck this. I'm not going to do any material. Cause you, cause you can't, you can't do material after that. She just absolutely slayed it. Any material after that is going to be almost a disappointment. And that is an extreme example. Um, and I've done this more than once, which is you're having so much fun with the improv at the top. Sometimes I get a voice in my head that will go, right, stop, stop it. You're having too much fun because the, the, every single minute that you're doing this, you are going to make it harder to get into your material. Because if you do too much connection at the top and too much of that at the top, and it goes on too long, when you get into your set, they go, ah, oh, where's, where's the guy? Well, but where's the guy who was really like really funny who started this set? You know, the guy was just like, you know, knocking about and making a joke out of everything. And it's like, now you've gone into material. Now you've gone into set up punch. You, you throw them. Oh. And if you do, so if you do that section too long, sometimes it's in, for me anyway, and I can only apply this to me in my act. But sometimes if I do that, if I do that connection stuff too long at the top, it's, it's, it then makes it, I've actually made it, instead of connecting being the thing that makes everything work, do it too long and it can be, it can be the thing that make, makes you come unstuck because you've done it for so long that people think that that's what your act is. So when you stop doing it and you start doing your material, they're like, oh, oh right. Oh, well, that's a shame. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's just, you know, it's a constant battle. It's always going to change. And I mean, it's going to, we're going to, I think, whatever comment you talk about when things get back to normal well i mean you said already it's going to be very hard but when people start get back on stage it's going to take maybe at least a couple of months for people to get up to speed again yeah yeah well the kind of there is that without a doubt there is that um i mean i was i was lucky enough to do a show in september um in um stoke uh, sorry not in stoke uh, well nearby newcastle underline um, and it, it, that was weird because I, I hadn't done a show since January. And funnily enough, the show I did in January was the very same place, Newcastle under Lyme. It's a really lovely club up there. Um, the, the Ruffle clubs, the, um, um, and so anyway, I did that. Um, uh, I did it in January and then I didn't, and then I played again in September and it was weird. It, it, it did feel, it felt weird being sat in a dressing room with other comedians, all like, you know, sitting, talking, shooting the shit. And what was really even weirder was I didn't know any of them. And that's very rare that these days, because I've been on the circuit for so long, it's very rare that I'll do a gig and I don't know anybody on the bill. Um, and I didn't know any of them. So it was like, it was like double weird. Um, but without a doubt, we were all talking about like the first night, you know, we, we all felt a little bit kind of like, oh, got to brush the cobwebs off a bit here. Um, but I, th I think, I think we'll all, I think we'll all take, you know, we'll, we'll all be back to it within, you know, within a, within a few shows, you'll be back to it. And with, with everything you've said so far, I mean, with all your sort of experience in comedy, I mean, it must be, also a fascinating story for you on like how comedy's changed since you started the style the people and like how it's shaped into what it is now yeah very much so um bringers were never a thing um you can't build i mean we were talking earlier about like building a, a rapport with the audience um you used to be able to build a rapport with bookers as well because the only way to get booked would be by time out and ring all of the comedy clubs in there and try and get on the bill. And that was your route to getting a gig. Either that or 
you know, turn up at the club and, you know, have a word with the promoter saying, like, oh, I'm a comic and, you know, and try, try and get on that way. Not necessarily that night, but, you know, you introduce yourself. Now, I didn't mind, I, I've never minded talking on the phone, so, I, I, you know, I, was, I used to ring around the promoters all the time. And you could, I mean, I remember, um, I remember doing it the first time I did the Ballon Banana. And I, was t- I must have been talking to Dave for about eight or nine months. I mean, we must have spoken three or four times before I, got, before I ever played there, before I got my first open spot there. Um, and you, you just could, you know, whereas now it's, yeah, it's, you, you've just got to, you know, it's, it's blanket emails and, uh, and, and, you know, and keeping, try to keep on it that way. One thing that hasn't changed is that in 1994 slash 95, when I started doing stand-up, comedy was the new rock and roll. And nothing has changed. People still go on about, oh, comedy's the new rock and roll, isn't it? Like this is some sort of phrase that has just appeared and sounds really cool. And it's like, no, it's been the new rock and roll for about 30 years now, and it isn't the new rock and roll. And the reason is people in bands are cool and stand-up comics are geeks and knobheads. And that's, yeah, and that's never been cool. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> you know? definitely true. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, I include myself in that. And, you know, I, it, people always say to you, you know, there must be something wrong with you wanting to do that. And it's like, yeah, it's called ADHD. <laughs> I mean, I, I never knew what it was before, um, <laughs> other than having a massive ego. But yeah, it's, it's, it, it has changed massively. Um, I mean, like everything, and, and look, you know, there's always been, there's always, always been super ambitious people. And there's always been people who've been like, right, you know, I, I'm getting in this to play Wembley Arena. You know, and there's, uh, those people have always existed. What I think the comedy circuit has now is it's, it's, it's choking on people who want to be famous as opposed to want to be famous for being a great stand-up comedian. There's a, and, and the thing is that stand-up, and don't get me wrong, it's fucking great. Stand-up, you can ring any comedy venue, any, any you know, um, venue that does a, that runs a, a, an open mic night, and you can get on. Brilliant. I mean, that is, that's just awesome. But it also means that you, you're going to get a shit ton of people doing it who, you know, should not be on stage and shouldn't be doing it. And, and there's always people who, who will say, oh, you know, you know who, are, who are doing some sort of therapy, you know, and they're, 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 they're working out issues and they think stand-up's the place to do it. it. It isn't. If you don't have the skills of a stand-up comedian, you can't. You know, that should never be your, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try stand-up comedy because I want to try and work these issues out. No, become a stand-up comic. And when you've got the tools, start working on the issues. You know, but the way to, the way to start out in comedy is just to get a fucking laugh from a really simple gag. And you're not going to do that if you're trying to, you know, tackle much harder topics without the skills to do that. And you're just going to have a breakdown in front of a crowd instead of at home on your own. So why do that? Um, but there is definitely, there is, there is definitely, oops, right? There is, there is, there is, there is definitely a more, so I don't want to say get rich quick scheme, but there is more people around who are like, I notice it when I MC the downstairs of the King's Head on a Thursday night and you get loads of new comedians and that, and it's like, oh, is there, you know, what advi- they say, oh, what advice could you, could you give me? And I go, and so, right, okay, well, there's this, this, and they go, and not, you know, I've, I've played this club and I keep, and, I, and, I, and I've stormed it, and I storm it every time, and I think they're taking the piss, they're not, and, you know, I can't get a paid gig there. And I'm like, right, okay, what's your suggestion? What do you think I should do? I said, I think you should keep playing it and keep storming it until they pay you. And they were like, well, I, I, but they're taking the piss. I said, look, it's the promoter's money, not yours. They're not breaking any laws by not paying you, but it's the promoter's money. And he will pay you when he thinks you are good enough to pay. He or she, I might add, will pay you when you're good enough to pay. They're paying everybody else on the bill. And that's because they're good enough. Now you say you're storming it. Well, maybe to them, you ain't. 
oh, that's a storming show to you, but it isn't to them, and it's not up to the standard of storming at that venue yet. Because how many times do you have a comedian come off and go, well, I think I pretty much stormed that, and you're thinking, well, you did all right, but fucking hell, have you ever stormed a gig? <laughs> that was not storming. You know, it's like, so, so it's like straight off the bat, you, you're dealing, you know, you're always dealing with, and you will always deal with a comedian's um, opinion of their act. And I'm always saying like, well, your opinion of your act is irrelevant because you don't, you don't book you and you don't pay you. It's the promoter. So you just keep coming back until they do. And I can't remember who it was, but I remember them doing a brilliant open 10 at the store. And he went over to Don and said, so, uh, you know, any chance of, you know, coming back, doing a 20? And Don just turned him round and pointed to the bill. And the bill was like Al Murray, Joe Brand, um, Mike Gunn, someone else. And he looked at him and he said, which one of them am I replacing with you? And he said, I just looked there and just looked at him and went, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same thing. You know, you, you get, you, you'll, you'll break through at a venue when you're good enough. And, and, the other, and the other bit of advice, how can I, you know, I seem to be stuck at this level and I can't break through. And what's your advice? Everyone's looking for a shortcut. And the beautiful thing is, the answer is the opposite. There is no shortcut. Be really fucking good every fucking night and everything will come to you. Simple as that. That's all you need to do. You just need to be really fucking good every fucking night. You just need to kick the ass out of every gig you do, every night, and world, word, will travel. Because, you know, comedy is, to a certain extent, still a democracy. There is, I, I haven't seen any acts that I thought were absolutely fucking shit get, you know, do really well. It's still pretty much democracy as far as I'm concerned. You know, people, people who aren't very good, I mean, do you know what I mean? I can see an act and not like it at all and not think it's funny, but I can still appreciate the craftsmanship, the work, you know, there's still, it's, it's not my thing, but I can see why it is other people's thing. Um, but, you know, uh, I, 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 I still think, I still think that it, it, it is quite fair, you know, people, you know, as a comic, Black, white, male, female, gay, straight, alien, human, you name it. You walk on the comedy circuit, you do your thing, and if you're any good, um, you can make a go of it. And if you stick at it, you can make a go of it. I mean, I've always, I've always said, every single person that starts out in stand-up comedy has the capability to become a stand-up comic, comic for a living. The key is just never give up. Just never, ever give up. Just keep going until it happens. And it, and, and it will, it will. You might, you might never get to the heights that you dreamt of when you were younger, but you will suddenly one day find yourself going, actually, this is my job. I'm, a, I'm oh shit, this is the goal. This, this, is what I, this is what I was aiming for all those years. Shit, I'm, I'm actually doing it. You know, um, it, it's, it, you know, it, it is possible. And I, and, and I think that's, like I said, I think that's the, 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 the kind of democracy that still exists within comedy. Well, you've been absolutely, you've been absolutely awesome. I must say a lot oh, of, bloody, that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that I think whoever's listening be like, oh, right, yeah. Oh, okay. You sort of put us in a different sort of mindset. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Um, I'd like to use the caveat that you too will be saying these kind of things when you've been around as long as I have. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would like to ask now is like, how do people find out about you and your work and can you get in contact? Uh, right. Okay. Well, um, uh, Keith is on, uh, you know, he's on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, on Twitter at Keith Platt. Couldn't be any easier. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook as well. 
Um, I have a comedy heavy metal podcast. The number one, I say it's the number one heavy metal comedy podcast because it is also the only heavy metal comedy podcast. <laughs> um, but um, uh, that's called Talking Bollocks. Um, and again, that is on, you know, that's on all social media. And if you want to download the podcast, just put Talking Bollocks into any podcast player. I've been doing it about six years. You've got hundreds of interviews in there. And funnily enough, tomorrow I'm interviewing Suzanne Vega for my, um, for my uh, podcast. So I'm all excited about that, I've got to tell you. Um, and then the band Acid Rain, the rain spelled R-E-I-G-N, funnily enough, is also on social media as Acid Rain. So it's like, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter for, you know, for all those three things. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's fun doing all these things and I can't wait to be doing them again. You know, I, 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 this has been horrible. I mean, I feel for everybody, everybody listening to this has had the, you know, the same, the same amount of shit probably more than I've had to deal with over this. So, you know, it's, um, it's all about just getting through it with all of your friends and family intact. And so far, um, I've managed that. So, you know, I'm thankful. Yeah. It would be so much worse. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved as well. And I think for everyone, let's see you all on the other side. And Howard, I'll yeah. see you on the other side. See you on the other side, Marvin. Lovely to, lovely to talk to you. And thanks for reaching out to do this. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.